Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, Doug Stoffer begins his look at the evidence found in the Bible that God will rapture the church before the tribulation period. And Larry Stamm will offer some helpful insight into sharing our faith. Our final conference of 2022 is exactly one month away. The second annual Las Vegas Prophecy Conference, November 19th and 20th at Sunrise Bible Church. Speakers include Pastor Billy Crone, Pastor Tom Hughes, Larry Stamm, Greg Patton, and Micah Van Hus. Make plans now to join us at Sunrise Bible Church in Las Vegas, November 19th and 20th. Registration is open. Visit swrc.com and click on events or simply call 1-800-652-1144. And let us know you're coming to the second annual Las Vegas Prophecy Conference, November 19th and 20th. Does the Bible conclusively prove that God will rapture the church before, during, or after the tribulation period? Author and pastor Doug Stoffer will lay out the biblical evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church right here on Watchmen on the Wall. I am happy to be talking to Doug Stoffer. Dr. Stoffer and Andrew Ray are the authors of Reviving the Blessed Hope of Thessalonians. It is the Rapture Commentary Series, Volume 1. Dr. Stauffer, welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I am excited because I get to talk to you. I know you have been rather busy. Now, I want about 40 seconds of you bring me up to speed. Now, you are still doing Bible conferences and revivals and things like that, but primarily your work is now in a little town called Niceville, Florida. It is, and as everyone says, the people here are really nice. <laughs> We've been here three years. I was on the road 19 years, and in January of 19, I looked at my wife before we were getting ready to do 30,000 miles January through June, and in January I looked at her and said, God's dealing with me about getting back in the pastorate. February of that year, the next month, came through the area that had changed my life 40 years ago, Faith Independent Baptist Church in Niceville, Florida, and they were looking for a pastor, and the rest is history because then in June of 19, I became pastor of this church, and again, this was the church that changed my life so much when I was in the military station at Eglin Air Force Base here in Niceville, Florida. Wow, and God brought you back there. How is it going? Oh, it's going fantastic. We had a record attendance, not this past Sunday, the one before I was out of town in North Carolina preaching just a few days ago, but two weeks ago we had our record attendance, so that's how it's going. It's pretty amazing, the people that God is bringing in our doors. Well, Now, your church was one of those many that were considered important by the government of Florida, or at least the governor of Florida, and you guys didn't have to stay closed very long or at all, did you? No, we closed down the day before the city closed down, so that was a Monday. We actually went online only on a Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, and the governor said that we were essential churches in Florida, and therefore we opened up 
immediately on that Wednesday, and I told everybody, I said, listen, stay home. I said, unless God leads you otherwise, you stay home, and we had 50% the first week, and then, you know, it took a little while for all of them, because we've got some elderly, to make it back. We still have a huge online presence. I think the statistics are up to about 10,000 minutes a month are being viewed on one of our I think it's Sermon Audio or YouTube or one or the other, but we have about 10,000 minutes per month, which is pretty significant. So we're going nationally and internationally through our online presence. We're talking with Doug Stauffer. Dr. Stauffer is co-author of Reviving the Blessed Hope of Thessalonians. And we want to talk about the book in just a moment, but I want to talk a little further about the situation of churches at this point. I have spoken to many pastors all across the fruited plain of the United States, and what I find is that there are many churches that are not even back to 50% strength yet. How has it been in Florida as a state? Well, it's been fantastic. You know, one of the things is that we are growing by leaps and bounds because people are escaping you know, the communist socialist agendas of many of the governors or mayors of their cities. And moving to Florida, we are on a peninsula, so we're somewhat, you know, we've got water on three sides, so we're somewhat limited, but they find us. And, you know, I have people that read my books, people that know who I am, and they travel in. We had one come in from Tampa a week before last, and They just drove up for Sunday and drove back, and that's God because, you know, I'm honored by it and thrilled because, you know, I get to see people and and meet them. I did not, had not met them, and they came up and they were just glad to be here, and of course we were too. We're a friendly church. We are fortunate in that I know what you're talking about, where churches are not being able to draw people back in. And I get that because COVID helped them to get a comfort zone of staying home, hitting the recliner, going to the refrigerator, you know, during the service or whatever they're doing. You know, some of them are. I mean, many of them are not. Some are still concerned about getting sick and dying and with all that's coming out with the press and how they've floated this thing and, you know, what's the next epidemic. I mean, people are staying home, and we're fortunate here that, we have not had that problem. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Douglas Stoffer is our guest, and we're talking, hopefully, we're going to get to talk about his book, and it's Reviving the Blessed Hope of Thessalonians. I was amazed at the fact that you and your co-author set forth your beliefs at the beginning. You didn't make me wait to read through to figure out what you were thinking, You basically told me what you were going to tell me, but better than, you just made me aware of what you stood for. And I appreciate that. And the reason for that is because a lot of people hold back and try to trick people into their side. And, you know, quite frankly, we don't have a side. We're Bible teachers, Bible believers, and what we do is teach the Bible, and that's what we wrote this book in that fashion. And so we just lay it out there and say, this is what we believe. We're premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that every chapter in First and Second Thessalonians, eight chapters, each one of them teaches 
on a pre-tribulation rapture and that there's not one verse in the Bible that contradicts that. And so if you rightly divide the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15, and you study it from a believing perspective and you let God show you the truth, then he will lead you into that position. So we state our position up front because we're not trying to manipulate anybody or manipulate the Scripture. We want it to say what it says and mean what it says, and we want to convey that to our reader. Having a pre-tribulational rapture position, there are many who would consider that to be passé or past in time. They now have picked up something they call preterism, which is a different viewpoint. Would you characterize that viewpoint, please? Well, preterism just basically means the church replaces Israel. You know, that's the simplistic definition. One of the things I just taught on in North Carolina this past weekend when I was teaching on Matthew 24, and they asked Jesus, when shall these things be? And it was right after he had come out of the temple and talked about the temple being destroyed, not one stone upon another. Well, the point that people miss, and the preterist is caught in that trap, is that your Bible is not simplistic. You're told to study so you won't be ashamed. But when they ask those questions, what is the sign of thy coming into the end of the world, they are asking a question going back to a discussion in chapter 23, verse 36, for instance, all these things shall come upon this generation. That is the generation of vipers, the wicked and adulterous generation, not a generation that started in 1948 or that was around exclusively in the first century. The generation is a common characteristic generation, which is another definition for generation. So the preterist misses that and says all of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the first century. What an astronomical bungling of the scripture. But that's what they do, that's where they end up, and they just remain confused. The Bible is very clear that when Jesus was asked those questions, they were not referring back to being astounded by what he was saying about the temple. In fact, it was an ecstatic series of questions, and they were referring back to what he had been talking about before they got off topic and started talking about the temple. Well, when you approach the teaching of God's Word in these local assemblies that are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, do they, for the most part, have an understanding of what's going on in Scripture before you get there, or are they a blank slate that you can write on? Well, fortunately, I get both. What I do is I teach in a very simple fashion. In other words, I gauge my audience. I keep it at a level that it will help the babe in Christ. And then I also know that if I don't feed and give them some meat to eat, those that are more mature in the Word, then they will have, you know, looked at it and said, you know, I knew all that. So what I get is, Well, I'll give you an example. On Sunday night after I taught, you know, I had several people come up and say, you know, boy, I didn't see that before, or I was taught this, and they would ask me a question, what about this? One particular question was, 
that the gospel will go out in all the world, then the end shall come. And they say, I always heard that that has to happen before Jesus can come back. And I said, well, the gospel, the grace of God, according to Paul in Colossians 1.6 and 1.10, has already gone out in all the world. That's what he says in those verses. When you're looking at Matthew 24, that particular context is the gospel of the kingdom, that gospel, which its message will be given by the 144,000 witnesses, the two witnesses, the 144,000 you know, Jews, the two witnesses, and the angel with the everlasting gospel going through the air, that will be different. That will go out in all the world, and then the end shall come. It has nothing to do in Matthew 24 with the rapture of the church. So when you start clarifying things like that, I watch their lights come on. I mean, I, I see people just, you know, their, their eyes get big when you're teaching them the truth because, you know, I know what they've been taught. I know most of the errors that have been taught because when I wrote my books, 90% of my study was material that I disagreed with. So what I did was I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to read things I disagreed with so that I could hone in my understanding and I could be challenged by those that disagree with me. That's what I did. Well, I know that I offended at least one individual that I think very highly of. He and I were talking scripture. He told me, he said, you know, we we have to wait until we get the gospel out. We don't have to worry about it. It'll take a while yet. I said, no, wait a minute. Where do we find this? And, and he came up with the same concept that you were talking about from your listener. And he had a hard time receiving the truth. In fact, I don't think he did. Perhaps I didn't say it as well as you do. But it was an interesting conversation, to say the least. And I had not even thought about that until, once again, you bring it to my mind. I get concerned about people that do not receive the truth readily. I get worried for them. Maybe that's the wrong word. Anxious, perhaps. I don't think so. I've been praying for them. Let's put it that way. When you encounter these people, and there are lots of them that have been taught things that are somewhat contrary to Scripture, but yet they're still in the faith, uh, how do you handle that? I try not to offend them because it's pretty easy to do and pretty hard not to. But I just let them ask me one question, and generally I've already heard the question just like you have with the one that they posed to you that we just talked about, and then I'll say, well, do you want to see what I believe the Bible teaches? And then I walk them through. For instance, Colossians 1.5, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you as it is in all the world. Well then, how do you argue with the fact that the gospel has gone out into all the world, the gospel, the grace of God? Then your problem that you have to now overcome is contradictions in the Bible. And then, of course, the point would be there are no contradictions. You must rightly divide. You can't take Matthew 24 and apply it to the church. The rapture was a mystery at that time. Paul got it revealed to him. Nobody prior to that really understood it. They may have written about it in picture and type, but that was just the Holy Ghost leading them. But you can't argue with Scripture. So when I gave them Colossians the other night, they were like, wow. Then I took them to verse 23 of Colossians 1, 
and it just ends there. It says, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. So now it sort of solidifies it again. When they have a chink in their armor, and they're not as defensive maybe at that point, because now they've read the scripture, and now they realize they're arguing against God. Some of them do. Others, just like you said, it really doesn't matter what you say. You're going to offend them. They are going to be upset with you. And what you've got to do is just say, I'm a Bible teacher, Bible preacher, Bible believer, and my purpose is to give the truth to everybody that will accept it. And then either people will accept it or reject it, and then you have to just leave it up to God. I believe you plant a seed just like you were talking about that individual. You either planted a seed or you watered it, and God gives the increase of understanding and knowledge. So, you know, we leave it up to him. And I'm not great at that. Neither are you what you're saying. Either are any of us. But we always try to be better and better. This book that we're talking about, the Reviving the Blessed Hope of Thessalonians, why does the blessed hope need to be revived? I was asked that very question on another interview, and it's interesting that you asked it because I remember thinking, well, why am I being asked that? Then I realized the way that we titled the book is we were saying that people were falling away from this understanding because of the Internet, usually, because of all the noise out there, and we needed to revive this teaching because there were certain groups that were confusing others. It is the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the rapture. You've got that in the book of Titus. It says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're to be looking for this blessed hope, and if people have gone away from that, we need to revive that viewpoint and that understanding. And so we've written this book, and then we followed up with a book on Matthew 23, 24, and 25, where it talks about that there is no rapture in you know those when he gathers together the elect when he sends his angels back to do that he is gathering them together for protection on earth and then he's going to destroy his enemies and then those that are protected that endure to the end just meaning they live to the end of the seven years they will go into the millennium and repopulate the millennium that's just a basic understanding that you have if you've had the blessed hope revived. If you don't, you're going to go to Matthew 24 and say, well, that's the rapture of the church, and look at the timing. We're going through that seven-year period, or part of it, and you're not, because you have to rightly divide the word of truth. We have much more insight from Doug Stoffer on the next Watchman on the Wall program. Does the Bible conclusively prove that God will rapture the church before, during, or after the tribulation period? Find out in Doug Stoffer's new book, Reviving the Blessed Hope. As the controversy rages and debaters rant and rave, Dr. Stoffer methodically, systematically, and scripturally considers many of the end times details concerning the timing of the rapture. This concise commentary on the prophetic events of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians provides definitive and undeniable proofs showing that the Scripture holds the answer. Order your copy of Reviving the Blessed Hope by Doug Stoffer when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or you can order online 
swrc.com. Larry Stam is here with some more helpful insight for you and me in the area of helping others know about the love and saving grace of Jesus Christ. Shalom, friends. Larry Stam here. So glad you are joining us as we continue this series, Serving in His Court, Biblical Principles for Personal Evangelism from the Heart of a Coach. In our last lesson, we began unpacking the foundational principles for evangelism, namely that evangelism is a process, a heart issue, and a team thing. We delved into the reality that evangelism is a process. We're in process. The people that we're seeking to reach are in process. We read the parable of the soils and spoke about the fact that both the seed and the sower are the same. The sower, anyone who sows gospel seed, namely the word of God. We mentioned that the variable in the parable of the soils is the heart. And we mentioned also encouragingly so that a hard heart today doesn't necessarily mean a hard heart tomorrow. And God, in his singular ability, changes hard hearts and changes the condition of the soil and brings people who are cold and hard and obstinate to the gospel to his saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I mentioned myself. I want to tell you a little story about while I was a missionary to my Jewish people in New York City for a number of years. One story, I was ministering to a Jewish man named David. He was an elderly man who had a scientific background. He was on my caseload. I got his contact information. I was living in Manhattan at the time. He was in Queens. I called him up, and he was actually an engineer with no religious upbringing. And I called him on the phone, and he was he said, you know, I'm open to talking to you about God, but I'm an agnostic. I'm not sure God exists, but I'm open to learning. So I started visiting David in Queens. I'd go over there usually once or twice a month. For about a year, I'd give him information. I would open up the scriptures with him. I'd pray for him. And after about a year, one day I went over to his house and he said, you know, I've come to a place now where I'm no longer an agnostic. I believe in a personal God. And I said, great, David, now that you believe in God, we can start talking about Jesus and whether or not he's the promised Messiah. It was that I left New York City, and I didn't have an opportunity to continue ministering to David. But I want you to know that it was a year of investing time and sharing with him and praying for him. And this man who was an agnostic came to a place where he believed in the personal God, the God of Israel. And next it was on to showing him how Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. That's just one story. We're going to continue now talking about the second foundational principle I want to share with you, and it's this. Evangelism is a heart issue. Evangelism is a heart issue. Where is my heart when it comes to the lost? Where is your heart when it comes to lost people? If we think about it, it's really a discipleship issue, isn't it? Because God wants to grow my heart, he wants to grow your heart in this area. I want you to think about this also. Evangelism is not necessarily about what we do, but what God does in our hearts and in the hearts of others. I first want to show you a little glimpse into God's heart for the lost. If you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. 
The Word of God says, And Jesus went about all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad, as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So we see Jesus seeing the multitudes, and the word of God says, He was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. If you're hearing my voice and you know the Lord Jesus, you also know that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. But people who don't know Christ, they don't have hope. They don't have a shepherd. They don't have someone caring for their soul. They need the Lord. And notice Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I just want to briefly comment on that idea that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Jesus then implored them, Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, that is a 2,000-year-old prayer. They prayed that prayer. They were not only a part of the harvest. The early church went out into the harvest in the first century after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church was born, grew, and expanded. But here in the 21st century, as you hear my voice, if you know the Lord Jesus, wherever you are, you and I are answers to this 2,000-year-old prayer. Isn't that remarkable? We are part of God's harvest. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You and I are not only part of the harvest and an answer to this 2,000-year-old prayer. Guess what? We are also part of God's labor force. We are the laborers. And there is a harvest in our midst. Incredibly, there are people in your sphere of influence and in my sphere of influence. And you know what? They're looking for answers. Some of them are looking for God. They're searching for God. They're searching for truth. And by God's grace, may we find out where God is working, in whom he is working, and join him in the work. So I've just introduced you briefly to the heart of God for the lost. We're going to continue with this principle next time because it's a very important issue, the heart issue as it pertains to evangelism. Hope this has been an encouragement to your friends. Until next time, the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Shalom. Doug Stoffer's new book, Reviving the Blessed Hope, gives concise commentary on the prophetic events of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and provides definitive and undeniable proofs showing that the Scripture holds the answer to when the rapture will occur. Order your copy of Reviving the Blessed Hope by Doug Stoffer when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. 
or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, more proof from the Bible that God will rapture the church before the tribulation period. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by subscribing to our daily Watchman on the Wall podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.